Good evening. It is an immense pleasure to be here this evening and to uh, be able to talk with all of you and to be before you. Uh, This is not my first time at the pulpit, but the last time I preached on a Sunday here at Northside uh, was a Sunday evening in 1993. Sorry, I guess it's time for the children to be released. I apologize uh, for that. So if any kids want to not hear an incredible sermon, uh, I'm just, just kidding, just kidding. I saw one of our elders back there giving me all kinds of smoke signals. I had no idea what he was talking about, so I just kept going. Um, it was 1999, and my wife and I had just returned from the Pacific Rim tour, which you all uh, graciously helped support, and I got to come up here and do a report on that. And it was a wonderful experience, and I'm just thrilled to be back up here. This past Wednesday, I had the opportunity to have uh, a left inguinal canal hernia repair and um, went through that whole process, so just four days ago, uh, and it was quite the endeavor. And so as I was thinking about the sermon tonight, I thought, you know, sometimes I say things that could be uh, inflammatory or, or cause some people to have some controversy. And I figured tonight, if I do that, really you have three options. The first one is that you're too sensitive, which is probably the case. No, I'm just kidding. But you, you may be a little too sensitive. And if so, you know, think about what I said and see if there's any merit to it. The second one may be just that I'm a pompous windbag and I'll entertain that. That may be one of the, the options. Or the third would could just be the Percocet. So you could blame it on that if you want to. I was thinking a lot before I, I was put out. I went under general, general uh, anesthesia. And I was thinking a lot about what I wanted to say to my kids. You know, you never know what's going to happen in any kind of surgery. You never know if this might be it. You know, you, you don't know what will happen with anesthesia. And there have been people that have been much healthier than I have been that went in for procedures and did not come out of them. And so I thought... I'd like to write a little letter to my wife and kids, um, just kind of what I would want for them if something were to happen to daddy. Some of you may be thinking, well, what was in that letter? None of your business. Um, But one thing I was thinking about that I wanted to talk with them about was was true religion. I've got a love-hate relationship with the book of James. I'm not the only one. Uh, James has actually been a fairly controversial book in the history of Christianity. You may not even know that. But there were a great number of people that didn't want James included in the canon. And it's because James is challenging. Uh, James talks a lot about practical application of faith. And one verse that we all know is James chapter 1, verse 27. James 1, 27 says this. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, I think many of you in this room probably grew up as I did. You probably grew up in in a church, probably the Church of Christ, although some of you I know uh, were not associated with that particular fellowship. But if you were like me... I grew up really focusing on that last part of James chapter 1, verse 27. My salvation, my theology 
of my salvation really developed as such, it was much in the vein of Jonathan Edwards. Any of you read any sermons from Jonathan Edwards? Before I went to York, right before I got there, we had a guy get up and do a chapel on Jonathan Edwards and on how we were sinners in the hands of an angry God dangling above hell and God was waiting to cut the cord. Any of you heard that sermon before? Great Puritan preacher, very famous sermon. That was kind of my theology. My theology was such that I knew I was saved by grace through faith, but it was really such a a thing that I had to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. And what that meant to me was that I did my best to try to obey God as much as possible. And then grace would come in and kind of fill in what I couldn't do. Anybody have that theology? I'd say a few of you probably have had that at least at one point in your life. I know that I struggled with that greatly. Really, that's the opposite of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is the understanding that there's no matter what we do, there's nothing we can do to be saved. The beautiful essence of our faith is that we are saved in spite of ourselves, not because of anything that we do. It's in spite of what we do. But I didn't really understand that theology. So I spent a whole lot of time trying to keep myself from being polluted by the world, trying to do the right things and be the right person and trying to stay away from sin. And as such, my theology was basically built upon sin and guilt. And much of what I did came out of that. I had no real clue on how to do the first part of what James talks about. How in the world do I take care of orphans and widows in my distress, especially when my theology is guilt-driven? So basically what happened is I built a theology that said, if I don't come to church and tithe 10%, I feel enormous guilt like I'm not doing my job, and all my giving was done by proxy. What that means is I never really helped people other than by writing checks or giving of my lawnmower money or my Mr. Bulky's money when I worked at Mr. Bulky's or Pizza Hut or wherever I worked, if I gave that money in church, then I was helping to take care of those in need and thus fulfilling that first part of James. And if I didn't, I felt guilty like I wasn't doing what I was supposed to before God and somehow that made me less of a Christian. So tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about giving. And that may seem like a weird topic for me to choose. You know, I only get one shot right now to speak to you. I don't know when I'm going to get a chance to do this again here at this pulpit. And so you may think, well, you know, you think of all kinds of different things we want to talk about. Giving is kind of that redheaded stepchild in the closet we don't like to talk about. When it comes to money, well, you know, everybody thinks that's what preachers do. We stand up and ask for money, right? I mean, that's what the world thinks. Now, luckily, we've been a part of this congregation. We know that that's not the primary focus But even here, I've heard people accuse us of being concerned about money for Know Your Bible and missionary work and all that kind of stuff. So I want to talk to you a little bit about the grace of giving. And to do that, I'm going to have to really set some foundations before we can get into the meat of it. And I'm going to get into some practical things about giving. Don't turn off when you hear me say giving because the important thing is going to be the grace. And I want to talk to you about that tonight. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'm going to read to you a little bit of this. Now, as I read to you, I'm going to ask you to be treasure hunters tonight. 
I'm going to ask you to strap a shovel to your back. I'm going to ask you to trudge along with me through some sand. And I'm going to ask you to dig up some nuggets here. Now, when we, when we read the Bible, we're so familiar with these words of Scripture that a lot of times we just read it and, and we hear the words, but they just kind of, we've been there, done that. So it just kind of goes through us. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to dig a little bit. I don't have time to do what I'd like to. I'd love to do a series on grace. I would love that. That would be amazing. I don't have time to do that tonight. So I'm going to ask you to be active in your reading. I'm going to emphasize words, and I'm going to ask you to extrapolate meaning from my emphasizations. That isn't a word, but I liked it, so I wanted to use it. All right, chapter 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, and speech, and knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want you to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. In Acts chapter 11, we read about a severe famine Paul and Barnabas are working in the church of Antioch. And man, I wish I could have gone to that church. Can you imagine Sunday morning, your Bible class is taught by Barnabas and your sermon is preached by Paul. What an amazing church that was. The church in Jerusalem was the mother church. It was more of the conservative church. And there was a severe famine and they took money in to support the people there. Now, early on when the church first started in Acts, there was a great moment. In Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit came in like a roaring wind, and there was this great thing that happened. And you can picture yourself, let's say we all went on a trip to Jerusalem together, and while we're there, the second coming comes. We hear the trumpets, and Jesus says, I'm going to establish a kingdom right here on the Temple Mount. Our plane tickets are for the next day. Who's going home? Nobody. We all want to be a part of what's happening there. Well, that's all well and good for the first couple of days, but about a weekend, my credit card's pretty tapped out. Isn't yours? Two weeks in, and we're in deep trouble. Can you see why they needed to give so much at the beginning of the church? They had to, because everybody was there, and nobody had planned on staying after Pentecost. Pentecost was a huge feast where a million people came into Jerusalem, and when that happened, a bunch of them stayed, at least 3,000. And as the number grew and they attracted people, they had to figure out a way to take care of everybody. They didn't scatter until the persecution happened. Well, there was a great number of Christians in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden this famine comes in, and they're all starving, and they need to take care of each other, and so they started raising money for the churches. And Paul developed this new theology of giving, new covenant giving, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I want to tell you this. 
Paul explained the way that poverty-stricken people could be uh, charged with selfless, sacrificing, generous giving. And the way that he could do that is through the work of grace in their lives. Simply put, the grace of God was greater than the severe trials they were experiencing in verse 2 here, their extreme poverty in verse 2, and their own ability to give in verse 3. Did you hear that? The grace of God was greater than the trials, the poverty, and their own ability to give. And Paul gives us the insight. You say, well, how in the world did that work? Paul gives us that insight. He says in verse 5, they gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us. So before we really get into the meat of what I want to talk about, there are two significant truths we need to learn from verse 5. The first one is this. The Macedonians' focus was on the Lord, not a need. First, they focused on the Lord. If you ever get the chance to go to the Philippines with Remy Kingsling, and and Tim's smiling because he knows where I'm going with this, Remy tells you you have to be very, very flexible. You have to have flexibility in your pocket to go there because all kinds of things happen, and you might get called on at the last minute to do something like, I don't know, preach a funeral. And then when you get up to preach the funeral, five seconds before you get up, somebody might tell you, oh, by the way, none of these guys are Christians. And if you ever say, boy, I don't know if I can do this, Remy has a go-to phrase, it's for the Lord. That's what she says. Remy, I don't know if I can get the money by then, it's for the Lord. Remy, I don't know if I can preach to a bunch of elders, I don't really know what to say, it's for the Lord. Remy, no, you cannot have my firstborn. I need him at home. It's for the Lord. She says it's for the Lord. The Macedonians understood that. They weren't giving just for a specific need. They were giving first for the Lord, then for others, then for themselves. I want to put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. But you got to keep in mind why we do what we do. Second off is this. And this you have to read into the text a little bit to get. But Christians do more than confess sin. They offer God themselves. We are the ambassadors of Christ to a dying and lost world. That is not just talking about salvation. In order to understand that, we have to understand what administering grace means. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 says, we administer grace. What in the world does that mean? Well, we've got to understand what grace is. We're motivated to, to give because of God's grace, not our guilt, but God's grace. And, and that's the problem. That's why most people don't like lessons on stewardship or giving is because of the guilt aspect. Let's just take that guilt aspect out tonight. I don't want you to give anything because of guilt or obligation or because you feel compelled like you have to do it. I want to talk to you tonight about grace. The number one problem in sermons studying giving and programs on giving and stewardship and money and all that stuff is their framework is not on grace but on obligation. And we don't understand what grace really is. So we have to talk about that. Now, when you grow up hearing the word grace, you think you might understand it. We think of grace as Well, I always learned it as not getting what I deserved. Anybody heard that before? Grace is not getting what you deserve. Some people will go so far as to say grace is getting what you don't deserve. 
Now, when my kids hear that, they may be thinking being spanked unjustly, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, we're dry, I heard one preacher say it like this, I'm driving down the road and I'm speeding going 75 and a 60, and a cop pulls me over and he says, well, you were going 75 and a 60, you deserve a $150 ticket, probably higher than that, I don't know, James, but you deserve a huge ticket, but instead of doing that, not only am I not going to give you a ticket, but I'm going to give you a police escort to where you were trying to go, let's get you there fast. That's what somebody explained grace as to me. There are aspects of grace that are very much in line with that kind of a concept, although any analogy fails us. Grace truly is God coming down and giving us something in spite of what we deserve. I agree with that. What we might not realize about grace is that grace is a whole lot more than that. So let's define grace for just a second. We're going to use these first few verses I've recently become more interested in grace due to a friend of mine, Dr. Joseph Becker. I had some discussions about grace with him, and he really illuminated some things I was struggling with in the Scripture and helped me see some things. And as I studied more about this concept, it really made me think, wow, we need to grasp this. So let's talk about grace for a minute. First off, we can say right here, and just in chapter 8, verse 1, grace is given by God. It is a divine thing. That there's something divine by this grace from God. It comes from him. It is 100% from God. You are not gracious by yourself. The grace you give to anybody, whether it's your child, your spouse, or a homeless person on the street, that grace comes from God. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. This Greek word charis, which is what, where we get the word grace, has this idea of a divine gift from God. Number two, to, to use the words of Joe Becker, grace is pneumosomatic. What in the world does that mean? Well, pneumo is spirit, and somatic means body. What I mean by that is there is both a spiritual and a physical aspect to grace. That Grace is not simply a spiritual activity. There is a physical component to grace. We need to understand that. I think too many times we think of grace as something spiritually God gives us. But think about the vehicle by which the greatest measure of grace was given, Christ. We know that Christ had both a body and he was spiritual, just like all of us. Now, he had that third component of the divine that we don't have, but there was a spiritual and there was a physical component to this grace. What else? Grace is communicable. Now that is interesting. They were able to participate and to give grace. Now how in the world does that work? If we start thinking about this idea of of God's grace coming down to us in the form of Christ, let me ask you, how is it possible that you yourself can help to transfer that grace or administer it, as Peter says. We're called ministers of grace. How does this work? Now, if you're thinking at all, right about now, that should be kind of a head-scratcher, honestly. How do, how do I participate in the transferal of grace? I mean, have you ever thought about that before? We're gonna, when we talk about, in just a minute, we're going to talk about four principles for giving. And our four traps that we get into. And one of the things we're going to talk about is our careers. 
And I want you to think about transmitting grace in your career. We'll get back to that in just a second. Grace can be practiced. You can practice grace. Wow. More than just getting what we deserve, it's a very real participation participation in the rich, overabundant, loving nature of God that is lavished upon the world. And we get to be part of that administration. Now, that sounded like a bunch of flowery words. Let me say this again and put it in English. You get to participate in giving that grace to others. Not just when it comes to salvation, but when it comes to the act of being involved in other people's lives, touching their lives, and giving them the grace of God through what you do. Now, that changes a little bit when it comes to our idea of what giving is all about. Are you starting to see a little shift? Giving's not about being compelled to give 10%. We're going to talk about the tithe in just a second. Giving is about participating and administering grace to the world through Christ. It is a mission. It is a commission. And unfortunately, I feel like it's something that we're not very good at. So, as we get into this, I want to set some. I want to set a couple of ground rules, and then we're going to take a moment to look at how we use our physical resources or money, what the Bible calls the root of all kinds of evil. We use that. To administer grace. Now already, some of you are already thinking about times people have administered grace to you through finances. I I imagine there's not a person in here who has not been touched by somebody financially in the name of Christ. I mentioned earlier about how gracious you were in supporting Amanda and I on our Pacific Rim tour, the first mission work that I ever did. And let me tell you, that was instrumental in shaping not only my theology, but my worldview and my love for the lost. By our finances, by our resources, we every day affect the grace of others. But let's set these ground rules for our money first. Okay, number one, when we give God our money, it cannot be to repay God for what he's done for us. We can't. We cannot pay God back for giving his son. So you've got to change that right now. You've got to make a change in the way you're thinking. Giving is not to repay God. I want, to hear, I want you to hear what I'm saying there. I think too many of us feel that's what we're doing. We can't. It cannot be to atone for our guilt. Because that's already been accomplished by Christ. We're going to talk in a minute about time for money. But giving a huge check in the altar is in no way a substitution for doing the work God's called us to do. And you can't use it to atone for your guilt like we do with our children sometimes, right? I'm sorry, daddy's too busy, but I'll buy you a video game. And number three, it cannot be to get God to love and accept you. Because he's already proven that through Christ. Now, I want to slaughter those sacred cows before we get into the meat of this, because if I do not, you're going to hang on to these preconceived notions you may not even realize you've had until I pointed them out to you just now. But I know there are 
most of the people in here that have dealt with at least one of those. Because I have. And the people that I love have, so I know you have too. Well, so why do we give our money and how do we do it? The new covenant reason to give our money is to honor the Lord, give Him glory, and demonstrate generosity to administer His grace to each other and to the world. That is why we give. It's not done out of guilt, because from God's perspective, there's no debt owed. Christians' giving comes out of gratitude and comes out of a desire to spread God's grace. We have that grace. We want to share it. God's Spirit is transforming us from being a bucket of receiving to a funnel to where we're giving that grace to other people. So I want to talk about four common traps real quick, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Four common traps related to the attitude of giving that we sometimes get into. The first one I want to mention is the tithing trap. The word tithe means 10%. How many of you were taught growing up that the proper way to give is 10%? Anybody? You don't have to raise your hand, although I'm glad some of you did. Sometimes we feel like we can't participate because it's Sunday night. But I would reckon that a lot of us were taught that either overtly or inadvertently growing up that the proper way to give is 10% of your income. And we based that on the Old Testament covenant. And, and we, we believed that God would not be pleased, listen to me, we believed that God would not be pleased with us unless we gave 10%, didn't we? We believed that. Tithing was training wheels. That's what tithing originally was. It was set up for spiritual infants and spiritual children, not the mature. God commanded the Jews to give 10%. You know why? Because the Jews were pagans. They had been in Egypt as slaves for 400 years, and they worshipped many different gods. They were polytheistic in nature. Did you know that? The Jews didn't understand one god when God called them. They were a polytheistic culture. That's why they immediately went to the fatted calf. Oh, Moses went up the mountain 40 days ago. God must be displeased with them and killed them. Our God has rejected us. We need a golden calf to worship because they believed in many different gods. Everybody did. They were spiritual children who had no discipline, no religious habits, and no sense of sacrifice, and God put training wheels on them to train them how to give. My children, we followed a little bit of the Dave Ramsey principle of paying them for chores, and we made them put money aside to give. Every Sunday, they give some money in their plate. Whenever they get money from us, they give some to God. Why? Not because I want to train them to give 10%, because I want to train them to give. If they give 10% alone, I'm going to be disappointed because tithing is a very good floor and it's a horrible ceiling. Tithing does some wonderful things. It teaches us the discipline of giving. It's a starting point. I mean, at first, 10%, are you kidding? That's a lot. If I have to give 10% to God and put 10% in savings, that only leaves me with 80%. That's not that much these days. It disciplines us. It's good. It teaches us how to lay a foundation to learn generous giving. It's a foundational concept. But the problem is that tithing is just the foundation. When I, when I give, I try to think to myself, 2 Samuel 24, 24. 
where David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord, my God, burn offerings that cost me nothing. We get so used to tithing, we don't even count on that money anymore, do we? We just, if you pre-think it, you just set it aside. If not, you're in church and, oh man, I didn't get my 10%. Let's see, I made uh, $1,000 this week. Oh man, that means I've got to give 100 bucks. I don't know if we can do that. Oh man, well, Olive Garden has that $9.99 special, so that may work. We could probably squeeze it in. Tithing teaches us the reality that God owns everything. Now, I think that's an important thing. Some people, though, believe that that means that God owns 10% and we own 90, right? Now, it's true that when God gives you something, it is yours. If you look at Ananias and Sapphira, what did they say? That money was yours to give or not to give. Why have you lied to God about it? But the reality is that God owns everything, and what he gives us, he gives us for us to use for his pleasure. And this teaches us that. But like in Isaiah's day, sometimes that ritual becomes such a ritual that the very purpose of it is left out. In Matthew 23, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they were so preoccupied with their giving that they neglected justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And Paul said, if I give all I have to the poor, but I have not love... I gain nothing. It is not about some mechanical form of giving. I want you to look at me in Ezekiel. Got to go to the Old Testament on this one. Ezekiel 16.49. Some of you don't even know this verse is in there. But I want to show you how important this grace of giving is to God. Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Now, most of us will say because of homosexuality. That's what we have been taught. And that was definitely a part of it. And I don't want to minimize that part of it. The immorality of the cities was legendary. But Ezekiel 16.49 says something very interesting. Listen to this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant Overfed and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. Did you know that verse was in there? I think some of you are probably like, what? That's in there? Everywhere in the Old Testament, when God comes down on the people, it's because of their lack of generosity, the lack of them taking care of one another. And he's not talking about just bringing the 10% to the storerooms at the temple so the Levites can live. He's talking about getting involved in people's lives and helping others. But we don't like to do that because it's dirty. Because getting involved in people's lives are messy. Because people are not textbooks. They've got real problems and real situations. And they can't be solved in 30 minutes with a couple of commercial breaks, can they? We are called to do this. Well, the first trap is the tithing trap. The second trap I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. The money for time trap. We talked about that a minute ago. This is the concept that generous giving relieves me from my duty somehow. That if I can just pay enough, I don't have to do something. Like a parent 
buying a child an extravagant gift to make up for their, ox, their absence. It's giving by proxy. Now, now hear me well, because some of the leaders of the congregation might be going like this right now. I am not telling you not to give in the plate. We got to support the work here. This is important work that we do. And the church is a church that survives in the real world. And the real world deals with money. I am challenging you to go beyond the plate, though. If your idea of taking care of the orphans and widows is writing a check to a charitable organization, a church, or the government through your taxes, I am concerned that you are missing the boat on what we are talking about here. How in the world can I administer the grace of God through paying my fair share of taxes, or some might say my not-so-fair share of taxes, but by paying taxes to the government, writing a check to the Red Cross, or dropping a few bucks in the collection plate? Giving that way does not excuse you from the work we are called to do. How about the more income trap? This trap assumes two things. The first one is if I made more money, I would give more money. I remember when I was in college, I prayed this ridiculous prayer. God, please let me win the lottery. Can you imagine how much good I could do with it? You laugh because many of you have prayed that same prayer. I know you have. So we think that if you have an abundance, then you can give more, and then you can do God's work. Or you think, to test me in this, and see if I will not pour out the storeholds of heaven upon you. You give to get. You take a verse that was applied to a certain group at a certain time, and you try to extrapolate that as some kind of magical formula. Now, God blesses. God is always taking care of us. My family, as you can tell, do not eat ramen noodles. But giving is not some magical formula by which we gain more. Giving is an act of grace. You see the mindset switch, do you? It's important that you do because now we're going to talk about one more thing. And that is this. Do you make a living? Or do you make a difference? The fourth trap is working to make a living. Why do you work? In Psalm 90, Moses asked God to establish the works of his hands. What Moses meant was that for his life's work to be significant, he has to depend on God to establish his work and give him a success. Think about Joseph. When Joseph was sent to Egypt, did he go there to become second in command and to save the world from starvation? Well, he didn't think he did. That wasn't his goal. His goal was survival. But he committed what he was doing to God, and God put him in a position to do that. Imagine if Steve were to get up here, and we asked him, um, we want you to share with us why you went in the ministry. And he said, well, the main reason I decided to get in the ministry was to make a good living. What? Would anybody be disturbed by that? If he said, you know, look, I noticed that if I did more weddings and funerals, I could make a little more extra. And, you know, the better I get, the more churches are interested in me. And I might get hired by a church that pays really well someday. This is a great way to make a living. The ministry is a really good... Does that disturb anybody? That, that would disturb me. If God didn't send Joseph into Egypt to make a living, 
if Steve didn't become a minister to make a living, then God didn't put you in your occupational field just to make a living. Have you thought about that? This takes a shift in thinking. Non-Christians work to make a living. Christians work to give glory to God and advance his kingdom. Everything we do, we say we want to be like Christ. Is that true? Because everything Christ did was for the advancement of the kingdom. Christ looked for the material, physical needs of the people and the spiritual needs of the people. And it was all for the glory of God. That's why he did it. So why do we think we should go to work just to make money? For every member of the body of Christ, there's a purpose and a plan and a place. Here's the biblical perspective. Either a person has a ministerial occupation or an occupational ministry. That's it. It's what you have. You are either a minister as your occupation or you use your occupation for a ministry. And you're ministering something. We only have a certain number of hours, each of us in every life. A certain number of minutes. And we trade our minutes for money on a daily basis. Or we trade our minutes to further the kingdom. Well, as we wrap up here, I hope you've realized tonight. My sermon actually isn't really even about money. What my sermon is about is our perspective. Why is it that when we preach about money, our focus is on the Ben Franklins? What I'm challenging you today is to allow God to use you as an instrument of his grace to a dying and lost world that needs grace, starting first with each other. There are people right now that are suffering. Right now that need that grace of God. It's not just financially, although there's a lot of financial need. There are some people right now that are hurting so badly and they've got pasts that are destroying them. And they've got things that are anchoring them down. And they've got judgment on them. And they need that grace of God. And you are the vehicle. You are the salve that can heal those wounds. What I'm asking for you tonight to do is to shift your perspective and be the grace of God. If you don't know that grace, you need to be in touch with that grace. It is a powerful, life-changing force that causes you to act differently. If you can't tell that from what I said tonight, I don't know how to illustrate it any differently. I don't know about you, but this week, my job is to give grace and not make a living. If you need to be in that grace and you need to learn how to give that grace or you want to just experience the grace of God more fully, come talk to us. We will minister to you. Come as we sing this song.